0: Well again everyone and welcome to this, the 84th episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast. With the exception of Harvest, it's really been an uneventful couple of weeks since our last episode and and maybe that's for the best right now. Weather's been perfect for Harvest, pickers and strippers have been rolling, gins are busy, and quite honestly I believe everybody's ready for this season to end and to take a well-deserved break. I'm Jim Steadman, Senior Editor of Cotton Grower, and as always I'm joined by Cotton Grower Editor Frank Giles. Frank, what's new?
1: Oh, not much. Just getting ready for the uh, Thanksgiving holiday and uh, looking forward to that and a busy time of year for us in the magazine world. It seems the holidays is when a lot of our magazines start hitting and special print editions and different things. So we're keeping busy, uh, keeping us out of trouble and uh, will make us hungry for that uh, big Thanksgiving meal. That's
0: true. We are thankful for the business and we are, and, uh, you know, we, we love to see it and we, but we also are thankful for the time we can we can break away from it for for just a day or two. So as i uh, said, as we kind of enter this this season of thankfulness, it's it's good to kind of sit back and take some time to reflect on on the things that we all are thankful for, things like family or freedom or health and this great industry and and of course good friends. So today, Frank and I are going to uh, kind of recall some some good times in this business with the help of a former colleague and and old friend, Emery Jones. Some of you may have crossed paths with, with Emory from his days in the cotton industry. And if so, we're sorry, uh, but but you know, most of you would know what, what kind of a character he really is. So stay tuned for what promises to be an entertaining segment later in this episode.
1: Yeah, another thing I would add about Emory Jones is that many of you may have some of his prints hanging on your walls in your home or in, uh, you may see them in cotton retail centers across the cotton belt. Uh, Full Moon Cotton is one of his famous ones, as well as In Good Time, that shows all the stages of cotton. So he is the photographer that that took those and, and we'll talk about that a little bit later.
0: But now let's take a moment for a short message from our sponsor, Phytogen. Phytogen is pleased
2: to sponsor the Cotton Companion, bringing you the latest news to help you thrive all season long.
1: Thanks as always to the folks at Phytogen for supporting the Cotton Companion. And now we're gonna turn it over to our colleague, Robin Skitberg for a custom content interview with Dr. Chris Main, Phytogen Cotton Development Specialist.
3: Hello, I'm Robin Skitberg, Custom Content Editor with Meister Media Worldwide, publisher of Cotton Grower Magazine. I'm back on the program today with Dr. Chris Main, Phytogen Cotton Development Specialist in Tennessee and Northern Alabama. Welcome back to the program, Chris. Hi,
2: Robin. It's great to be back.
3: Well, the season's wrapping up um, all around the country, and now it's time to start looking to next season. What kinds of varieties are you recommending for next year for your area in the Mid-South?
2: Robin, the varieties that we will have with Phytogen all contain our... W3FE trait platform with Wide Strike 3, uh, Roundup Ready Flex, and then List for um, BT and weed control traits. And we will also have our phytogen breeding traits that bring forward interesting um, novel ideas for um, controlling pests like um, bacterial blight and uh, different nematode species.
3: What varieties are you recommending specifically for
2: your area? Well, Robin, what we're leading with um, all across the country was the number three planted variety in 2020. that would be Phytogen 400. It's a marquee variety within our lineup that goes across many different grower acres um, in many different environments, whether it's irrigated or dry land, and performs with high yield and excellent fiber quality. We have a couple companion varieties to go along with 400 this year, the first of which is Phytogen 390 that fits very well in in the mid-south Delta area along the Mississippi River, uh, particularly those areas kind of south of Memphis. Uh, we want to place 390 on fields that, um, you know, have really high yield potential. Where we can push it with our inputs and be able to get a high yield um, at the end of the year when we come in with the picker. The other companion variety is Phytogen 360. And it has specifically been released for areas of the North Delta. So from you know kind of a transition zone from Clarksdale, Mississippi, north um, through Memphis up into Sykeston, Missouri. Um, 360, these are an early maturing variety that's really high yielding. And probably what's unique about that variety going north is that, you know, it tends to handle the cooler, wetter early season that we have. It's excellent vigor, allowing us to, you know, be able to harvest some cotton in some lower wet ends of fields um, where many other varieties fail to thrive throughout the growing season. And finally, I'd just like to mention that we do have two experimental varieties that will be released later this year. Um, both of those will have a new phytogen breeding trait for controlling reniform nematode. Um, as well as controlling root-knot nematodes um, in our package.
3: Sounds like there's a, a lot of varieties for growers with all kinds of conditions, and that last runiform nematode resistance trait is going to be really exciting. Thank you so much, Chris, for being on the program. We've got to go now, um, but listeners can go to phytogen.com for more information. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you, Robin.
1: Thanks, Robin, and thank you, Chris, for that interview segment. Before we open up the virtual studio for Emory Jones, Let's take a quick look at what's happening in the cotton world.
0: Well, Frank, as we mentioned earlier, it's it's been kind of quiet news-wise for the past few weeks, but we do have a couple of items that we want to mention. Uh, the National Cotton Council has announced that its 2021 annual meeting is going to be conducted uh, virtually to minimize risks to industry members due to COVID-19. As you recall, the, the council is also holding its annual Beltwide Cotton Conferences in a virtual format uh, January 5th. 5th through the 7th. Now, the NCC staff is currently developing a schedule for the annual meeting, which was originally going to happen in February 12th through the 14th in Nashville. At this time, NCC expects many of the convention's committee meetings will take place during the weeks of January 25th and February 1st, with the NCC board of directors meeting and the annual meeting general session to be held on February 11th and 12th. Now, new NCC leadership for the year is always elected during this meeting, as well as leadership for several affiliated organizations and multiple awards are presented. And we'll be there virtually to cover the meeting and bring you all the news as it happens. And as we mentioned in our last podcast, Cotton Gore Magazine is looking for input for our annual Cotton acreage Survey, which is published in our January issue each year. Hopefully, many of you recently received an email link to the acreage survey and we'll take a few minutes to give us your best guess regarding cotton acres in your state for 2021. If you're a U.S. cotton grower or member of the cotton in, or a member of the cotton industry, we certainly wanna hear from you. You can find the link to the survey in our article posted at cottongrower.com and we thank you in advance for your help.
1: We wanna to welcome to the virtual studio today, the legendary Emery Jones. Emery and I go Quite a few years back, I worked with him at the uh, agricultural advertising and public relations firm, Freebearing and Company, back in the day, in the mid-90s, and he kind of taught me the ropes of ag PR. Uh, I did that for a number of years with him. So he's been on a lot of farms. I would be surprised, surprised if not a good portion of you in the audience might have one of his prints hanging on your wall. Uh, In your home or in your offices of a co op or retail center. Uh, So, and he's been on a lot of cotton farms over the years. So, Emery, welcome
4: to the Cotton Companion. Well, thank you, Frank. It's good to be here. I appreciate you uh, calling me up. You're making me sound old. And usually, after an introduction like that, my wife wants three minutes for rebuttal, but she's not here. So,
0: yeah, one thing I want to say on this is Frank's known you, you know, since what, Frank? You were saying the 90s? Mid 90s, yeah. Emory, I think you and I both go back to, like, the late 70s, don't we?
4: Absolutely, yeah. You were at Sawyer, Alley Compton, Yeah. And uh, I was at the ad agency at Goldkist at the time, probably.
0: It's one of the reasons I don't use the word old, you know, when, when I'm talking about you and me <laughs> at this point, but...
4: Well, you know, there's there's three signs of old age. Uh, the first one is a loss of memory and I forget the other two. <laughs> well, speaking
1: of old, we'll get get to that time that time you visited with Eli Whitney uh a little bit later in the podcast.
4: Yeah, Eli was a good friend of mine. Uh I, I called him Whit, yeah, you know,
1: but uh, <laughs> Yeah. Well, good deal. Well let you know, to get us started, just talk about you know, when you got to into agricultural public relations and then maybe when you got to got to visiting cotton
4: farmers. Well, I kind of, my granddaddy was a cotton farmer. I grew up with him. He actually had gotten out of the cotton business by the time I was born in the 50s. But in the 30s and 40s, uh, he had a, uh, I got, what had about 50 acres? And of course, it wasn't all in cotton and they had cattle and chickens and things. But uh, so I grew up hearing about cotton and, and knowing where the old cotton fields were and everything, but granddaddy was a was a potter as well as a, a cotton farmer and everything. But there's people here today in North Georgia who will argue with you that cotton was never grown here, but if that's not true. It was grown here a lot. I've got a letter from my grandmother to uh, her two boys, my two uncles in World War II. And one of the letters says that if this year, if things go as well as they've been going so far, they'll actually make three bales of cotton on the farm this year. It's the best cotton year they've ever had. And she goes on in the letter to say that it looks like it's going to be the most profitable year the farm's ever had. And and she didn't want to jinx it by by saying it too soon, but it looks like they might make $300 profit this year. Wow. Wow. That was 1943. And I think it was cotton that put them over the top. So I, I go back into cotton and, then I got uh, a degree from the University of Georgia in uh, agricultural journalism. I went to work for Goldkist, which Goldkist used to be the old Cotton Producers Association. It was heavily in the cotton, and still had a lot of cotton products and all that. Gave me the opportunity to visit a lot of cotton farmers in, in Georgia and Alabama and North Florida, places like that. But in the Carolinas, of course. But um, then from Goldkist, I went to an ad agency called Fletcher Mayo and associates, and there at the time, I guess, they were probably the biggest agricultural ag- ag- ad agency in the country. And uh, that kind of expanded to that. I got to start traveling into other areas of the country and also getting into California cotton and Virginia cotton and Texas cotton. Uh, so I was on a lot of cotton farms there. And then I went to work for an agency where Frank and I met and um, called uh, Frick Bearing Company. At the time it was Casino and Purcell, <clears throat> it uh, evolved into pre-edging company. And Frank and I, we, you and I both in Jim too, we've been on a lot of cotton fields together across the, the cotton belt. And Lord knows, telling how many belt-wide cotton conferences we all attended, and uh, that was all across the, the country. And it uh, just gave me a chance to just, you know, meet cotton farmers and get to know cotton and, and just really fall in love with the crop. Very good. Well, just speaking of that, what are
1: some of your most memorable visits with cotton farmers?
4: Well, uh, and,
0: and be careful what you say. They might be listening. Some, <laughs> of them
4: might be. some of them might be. One of the most interesting visits about cotton actually happened in North Dakota. and I'm not talking about that pig, Frank. I know you're going to mention it later, but there was a, a cotton farmer in North Dakota, I mean, a, a wheat farmer in North Dakota who um, just was just fascinated by cotton. And when he found out I I traveled a lot in cotton country, he just wanted to talk to me about cotton. And and we spent the whole day (laughs) on his farm. I was supposed to be interviewing about his wheat crop. And I was just telling him what what I knew about cotton. And and he was taking notes. And and after that, he wound up coming down. I, I introduced him to a cotton farmer in Mississippi. And he came down the next summer and spent a week on a cotton farm and actually got to drive a a, a cotton picker and, and help him harvest a little bit and then we sent him some cotton seed up there and he, he had a cotton plant in his house that he kept for years and years and he'd send me pictures of, of this cotton plant so it's it's our it's funny that the one of the most interesting cotton stories i have that actually happened in north dakota <laughs> but then but there's plenty of others i mean uh uh you know we traveled a lot with sales reps and uh Occasionally, most most of the time they would take me out to, as they did you guys both too, the farmers who had success with the, the products of the, the seed or um, whatever. But occasionally, you would get involved with a sales rep who had to handle a complaint where something had gone wrong, and some of those came into became pretty interesting stories. I remember, uh, um, you know, sometimes it'd be a, a little bit of a heated discussion, and I was kind of trying to take pictures and. One time a farmer I was taking pictures and kind of avoid the conversation that they were having and he stopped and looked at me and said, you take one more picture of that, of that camera, and you're going to eat it. And so I didn't. I chose. <laughs> and the other thing I learned about farmers, in fact, I even wrote a poem about this, but I learned early on that if you drive up on a farm and the farmer's laying on his back up under a piece of equipment working on it and something's broken down, just leave. Just go ahead and go. <laughs> he's he's not in the mo- he's not in the mood to talk to you, and you're bothering him. And 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 I've just learned to just I can spot it from the driveway. Uh oh, we need to go home. We need to just turn and go. He's not going to be in a mood to talk to us. In fact, I wrote a poem uh, called "If He's Broke Down, Just Just Get." About <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's great.
1: You remember the one about the guys from Louisiana that were going to take you alligator hunting?
4: Uh, no, I don't remember that. Well, I told you the first thing that goes remember you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you said that earlier. I, th- I think
1: I remember you I remember you telling me they were going to take you, said they were going to take you gator hunting, and you said that that sounded dangerous, and the, the guy said, well, don't worry, we'll
4: be drunk. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. That's right. I do remember... Uh, uh, this this was actually in Florida, and uh, there was an alligator laying up on a the um, bank there by the cotton field, and the farmer stopped his truck and got out and hit the alligator in the head with an axe, and it didn't even phase alligator; it just ran off. It just boom! I guess he hit it right on the spot where it didn't hurt it. But uh, another interesting story was, you know, every four years the belt lad was in New Orleans. I mean, uh, San Antonio, and uh, one time in the Minger Hotel, in the bar at the Minger Hotel, I met a farmer from South Texas, and I can't even remember the fellow's name. And we just hit it off, you know, got to be talking like good friends and the next bad i to see him at the meeting and everything. Well, four years later, I went to the bar, it's about the same time, and there was the same farmer. And we hit it off, had the same thing again. And I think that went on for about 12 belt wides. <laughs> And we'd go there, and, that farm, we, and so it got to be an annual thing. We'd meet there, and he brought a couple of his buddies. And, and uh, y'all may have been with me on some of those. I don't know, but uh, it just got to be a tradition. Every time – he didn't go to any of other Beltwites. He just went to go in and, and, uh, and San Antonio, if he's listening to this, I tell him to look me up sometime. <laughs> but that was one of the more interesting stories. But the biggest thing about getting on those cotton farms – were the people. I mean, that, the people are just fantastic. I don't know what it is about farming in general, but it seems like cotton farmers in particular are just a good group of people. Absolutely. People you want to be friends with and people you want to get to know. And, and you know, and you meet people, um, and y'all have had the same experience too. You meet them and, and 10 years later, you're still getting Christmas cards from them. Yep. And I mean, that's just a unique experience. Absolutely.
1: Well, you know, you'd mentioned... Uh... Had the opportunity to not only work with cotton farmers, but farmers all over the country. You mentioned North Dakota. You have any idea how many farms you visited and how many frequent flyer miles you racked up over that
4: time? Well, I was almost, I'm almost, well, I still am almost uh, to the two million mark on the Delta, and I think I had about a half a million or so in Northwest and you know other airlines, but. Um, there's a lot of miles. I mean, I'm, I'm at least, uh, I remember Delta sent me a couple of, of, uh, candle holders for for reaching the million mile mark, but they didn't send me anything yet for the two million. And I hope I don't make the two million to be honest with you. (laughs) That means I got to do a lot more (laughs) practice. Especially. But yeah, I guess, um, I guess probably all together. Um, I've racked up at least two and a half million miles on planes and I'm, y'all are probably maybe ahead of me on that, but, uh, it's pretty easy to to do it um, when you travel that much. You know, I mean, it wasn't anything to go in the office. I remember walking in the office one day, and um, two uh, two airline tickets were laid on the receptionist's desk there. And I said, "What's this?" And they said, "It's for you. You and John have got to be at the airport in 20 minutes, or <laughs> something." And they want you out in California for a meeting or something. So I mean, you know, that was um, it. It was just didn't even think about it. I mean, Judy, my wife, never knew me when I didn't travel, and I think she liked, liked me a lot better when I did, than she? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody asked Bob Hope one time what was the secret to a successful marriage, and he said travel and lots of it. <laughs> <laughs> Any idea how many farms you were on? Well, I don't know. Let's think about it. Let's say say we did this for 30 years, and uh, say you average one a week, probably two a week, because when you go out with a rep, sometimes you go to five or six farms, you know, and you're out with a rep every week, so at least two a week. You know, let's say a hundred a year for thirty years. That's you know twenty five hundred, three thousand farms. That adds up, doesn't it, it? Sure does. It's a
1: unique experience to have have that access to farmers. It's it it's when you're doing it and
4: you don't think anything about it, but then you, you you stop doing it and you stop and think about it and you go like, wow, what an opportunity that was! What an incredible opportunity! I mean, just to just tell the average person what you did and you went on as many farms as we've all been on, they can't even comprehend it. And yet it was just, just the way we the way we work and just our job. But it was um it was an amazing experience. And it was I mean you are saying, okay, how many cotton farmers can you talk to? Well you go one county over and they got a whole new set of problems. And you go to one state over and you're talking about a different kind of cotton. And then you get to California and you're in a whole different world and you get out to Lubbock and you got the bumblebee cotton and and a whole you know, a whole new way of, of approaching it, and it's just never boring, and you got stripper cotton, and, and uh, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a million, the average person cannot comprehend how much there is you got to learn about cotton, you know, before you can write about it, and all the other crops, too, all in all, I got to to every state uh, during my career, and I was, we went to Hawaii on vacation, and I wound up talking to a, a pineapple farmer just to just so I could say I'd interview the farmer (laughs) in that state. We went went to Alaska on vacation, and I found a guy that grew cabbage and and interviewed him just so I could claim that. And uh, finally, I'd been to 49 states. I hadn't been to all 50. I hadn't been to Rhode Island. It was the only state I hadn't been to. And I was traveling with one of the sales reps up uh, really close to Rhode Island. And we were driving past, and uh, I saw a sign, a road sign, and it said... uh, you know, something like Providence, 40 miles in that direction. And uh, I said, you know what? I've been to every state in the union except Rhode Island. And here I am you know, 20 miles away. Boy, I sure would like to get over there. He said, well, I'm sure you'll be there one day. You'll get there. He just kept driving. He didn't even take the hint. <laughs> yeah. It was like, hint, hint. Yeah. It took a while, but I finally got to Rhode Island, too. So <laughs> but that was, a, was just an incredible opportunity. No matter where you go, um everybody's interested in cotton. Exactly like that farmer in North Dakota. I mean, you could go to Oregon and be interviewed an apple farmer and bring up the subject of cotton and he wants to stop and talk about it. It's just a fascinating crop. It's unlike any other crop I've ever been around. I mean, uh, a farmer in North Dakota will say, I'm a farmer. He didn't say I'm a wheat farmer, but in Mississippi, he'll say I'm a cotton farmer. It's just something deep about that. It is the fabric of our lives. It is. That's right. Somebody ought to coin that for it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in the process, you became quite a photographer. Uh, um, I remember there at Freebearing and Company, these huge wall of, uh, of filing cabinets full of sleeves of slides. There had to be probably hundreds of thousands of slides in there. you have any idea m- many photos you took? And, and then, you know, talk also about the prints, uh, the full moon cotton uh, in good time. Because again, I'm sure a lot of these
4: listeners have your prints uh, hanging on the wall. Yeah, I don't, as, as I take a lot of pictures. I always, the, the philosophy at Gold Kiss and everywhere else I work is like, we're going to pay to get you out there on an airplane. Don't be skimping on film. <laughs> no. We've got so much invested in films, not as a, as a minor thing. So take a lot of pictures. And while you're there, you're not just taking pictures of the story that you're doing necessarily, but you're taking pictures for the files and archives and possible ad. Add, add material that you might use in brochures there's all kinds of uses for, for film um, images and so I would take I would say every farm I was ever on I took back in the days 36 to a roll of uh, of slide film I would take 10 or 15 rolls at every farm so you add that up I, I would I, I just did some rough figuring here that the other day <clears throat> on that same subject you can I came up with probably about 300,000 images that I've shot. Now of those 300,000, 70% were throwaways because, you know, you take 10 pictures, y'all, you both know this better than I do, but you take 10 pictures to get one good when you're lucky. And uh, the farmer's got his eyes closed or the, um, you know, dog got in the picture or something like that. Speaking of dogs and photography, by the way, I'll tell you this one story. It got to be, I had a reputation of, well, let me just tell you this. We would, we would I always take pictures <clears throat> and send the farmer back an eight to ten that let the sales rep give the farmer just as a PR tool, a nice gesture, a way to say thank you for what we for the time he gave us. And a lot of times the, there'd be a dog in the truck and around the farm. I would take a picture of that dog, and then by the time I two or three weeks passed, I sent it back to the sales rep, and he he'd, he'd give it to the farmer. The farmer would say. Oh, I'm so glad to have that picture of old Bobo. You know, I mean, he just got killed by a car last week, and that's the only good picture of the dog we have. And, and it got to be going on and on and on. And and the rep started comparing notes, and it was like, everybody, every time he takes a picture of a dog, the dog dies. The word got out about that, and I had a reputation that people were like, you're not, you You can come on the farm, but you're not taking a picture of my dog. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that's kind of a bad thing to have, but uh, but it was it was it was just one of those freaky things that happened, but
0: uh, you
4: know, that was kind of a funny thing.
0: Yeah, we kind of have that reputation with this podcast too. Is, you know, we'll 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 talk about something, and and no sooner than you know two hours after we've recorded, you know, it, it changes completely. So, you know,
4: that's the way the world works, I think.
1: <laughs> we'll talk about how that photography morphed into the prints that you did and and uh, and sold.
4: Well, I uh, had all these pictures of cotton because you take it at all different stages, and and uh, I just I just came up with the idea of us put one one image together that shows all the different phases of cotton. It's from a little seedling and the little cotyledon coming out of the ground and the plant through bloom and and then um, all the way up to an open bowl and I took an image of a, of a uh, some, cotton, some cotton picker in the background and, and put all that together. This was back when digital um, stuff was just coming out. And I found this firm in Atlanta that did that and I put um, it, I mean at that time I think it cost me $6,000 probably cost me about 3 bucks today to get somebody to do it but it cost $6,000 000- have the, And we'd make one little change, and we'd have to go get a cup of coffee and wait about 15 minutes for that change to go all the way through. <clears throat> come back and say, well, I didn't like that. I don't want to move it a little bit to the left. And you come back, and you'd have to do that again. But uh, it took about two weeks. I got it got it like I wanted it. And we made some prints. And uh, Joe Dan Boyd at Farm Journal Magazine wrote a story about it. And then I sent one of the prints as a fluke, I sent it to uh, Paul Harvey, the radio announcer. And Paul Harvey mentioned it on the radio. And I sent the, the article that Joe had written in Farm Journal. And um, my aunt and uncle were over here at um, the feed mill not far from us. And they were coming out in the feed mill. And they got in the truck. And my uncle was complaining that, that the price of feed had gone up. And my aunt says, hush, hush. Uh, Paul Harvey's talking about Emery on the radio. And he said, oh, my Lord, what has he done?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which was, of course, the logical question.
4: Right. Yeah, right. But anyway, and he talked about it on the radio for about, uh, I think, two or three minutes. And just went on and on about how how this print brought brought tears to cotton farmers' eyes and things like that. And and as a result of those two things, we wound up selling about 1,100 of those prints all across the cotton belt. And then a, a chemical company bought uh i don't know four or five hundred and had them framed and gave them to dealers and and consultants and and things and they wound up hanging i mean just about got embarrassing you couldn't even go into a dealership only without seeing one or or a house or anything so from there i went ahead and did the life cycle of cotton i did the life cycle of rice i did sugar beets i did canola and i did corn and then another plant i did i was in a cotton field in uh in uh, the hill country in Mississippi one time and it was late at night and the full moon was coming up. It wasn't late at night, it was late in the evening. The full moon was coming up. And I took a picture of this cotton field with the moonlight on the open bowls, which is beautiful. And they harvested it the next day. And uh, wound up making a print out of that called Full Moon Cotton. And I don't have any of those we've sold, but um, it's quite a quite a few. So there's a lot of those hanging around. And then and then the cotton blooms are just so pretty that I had taken over the, across the cotton belts, close-ups of, of blooms and uh, had the dew on them and, and all kinds of things. So I made two different prints of that called, um, uh, one of them was called uh, Colors of Cotton and the other was called Cotton's True Colors. And uh, one had a white bowl in the middle and the other was a picture, of a red, red uh, blue, not bowl, bloom, blue, white bloom and a red bloom.
1: <clears throat> so I had it
4: both ways. And um, women like those pictures. Men, men did. I don't think I ever sold a a, a balloon picture to a man. It was always, unless he bought it for his wife. But the women like those. And I've seen them hanging in in the the kitchens and dining rooms and things like that. So that was a very satisfying thing to do. It was fun. But we still have those prints. We still have a few left of all those things. So they still sell occasionally. That was fun.
0: I just want to let you know that here here in the in my virtual studio hanging over my shoulder at this point is the uh is the the moon show photo. You probably
4: put it at this interview, didn't you?
0: <laughs> yeah, just just for this interview. It's a shame you're not it's a shame you're not on video and can't see it. But uh but I also think the bloom fi- the big pic- bloom pictures are also hanging somewhere in this room. So uh so yeah, it's you know, I I walk in every day and and, and think about you, Emily. <laughs>
4: I appreciate that. <clears throat> I hope it's good thoughts.
0: Uh, well, you don't know that for sure, but...
4: I don't, I don't. But I want to say one thing about those... Uh, we'd sell them at the gin show, the Beltwide, all kind of cotton shows we'd go to. My wife would have a booth there. And she would uh, sell those prints. And we took hundreds of checks. And we never had one check bounce from a cotton farmer or cotton, anybody in the cotton community. That was just, I thought it was... We had a store <clears throat> up here after, we, after I moved back up home here and uh, in North Georgia, and we get a, b- a bad check a week, you know. <laughs> but just <clears throat> just thinking about that from the, these cotton farmers, and the very first one I sold was to a guy. We would actually had him on display up at, at uh, the gin show in Memphis, and this farmer called me up and he said, uh, "I want to buy one of those cotton plants," and that's okay. And he said, "Well, the problem is I've got a son. His birthday is in two or three days from now. And I need you to overnight it to me, and I don't have a credit card." So I'm gonna to have to send you a check. He said, "Will you trust me to send a check?" And I said, "Yeah, yes, sir. I'll go ahead and get the thing out today, and and you should have it tomorrow, or the next day." And he said, "Okay, but he said, I'm gonna tell you one thing." And I said, "What?" He said, "I've never written a bad check in my life, and I'm sure as heck not gonna start with you." <laughs> so I sent him the print check, and the, but that was kind of the that was kind of the, uh, the the experience we had with with that. In fact, I don't think we had a bad check from any of the, any farmer anywhere, but. Um it was just a, you know, something you sit back and think about and say, that's pretty amazing. No, we did the pictures and that led into, uh, I did a cotton coloring book and I did a bunch of cotton Christmas cards, uh, put Santa Claus out in a cotton field and, and uh, did one uh, <clears throat> one card I did called 10 Reasons Why Santa Could Have Been a Farmer. And I was actually in a, uh, in a meeting in Memphis uh, listening to all the uh, tech guys talk about the <laughs> the things tech guys talk about, and you know, kind of, what, 90% of it was way over my head anyway. So I just started doodling, and I made uh, um made notes, and it wound up turning into a Christmas card. It's like ten reasons Santa could have been a farmer. It's like he works all day, all year, just to give his stuff away. He's good with livestock. He knows how to get by the uh, with the same equipment season after season. <laughs> He works outside even in bad weather. He's good with kids. His wife is a good cook. Uh, He can stand to lose a few pounds. Uh, He's used to getting in and out of tight spots. He covers a lot of ground in a hurry when the pressure's on, and he takes care of the needs of the whole world. I put Santa Claus on the front with a green hat, and boy, we started getting all kinds of reactions from people that wanted to be wearing a red hat. So then we, we did them play. We did a red hat and a green hat.
0: <laughs> well, those those battles still continue.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh that's one at one end right there. But that was uh, that was fun. So we had a lot of you know, a lot of fun, fun times with those things, those Christmas cards. No telling how many of those have been sent out over the years. Yeah,
0: my, my question of course is are you gonna are you gonna do your annual Christmas card? Oh
4: yeah, yeah, I have to do that every year. I've been doing that now for uh, Lord, 30 years probably. Yeah, the first one was serious. We we bought all these Christmas cards and we never got around to mailing them. So I just sent everybody an email and, and described the cards to them. And said, here's what you would have gotten if we'd gotten around to mailing them. And and so every Christmas since then, uh, usually around Christmas Eve, I send this email out that describes the cards that we didn't mail. Yeah,
0: it's a Christmas tradition, unlike any other.
4: It is. But but if I don't do it uh, or I'm somebody off the list, I mean, I start getting phone calls. Hey, where's my. Last year, I, I, I honestly had Jim. I had people calling me in January saying, "Where's my? I want my card," and I had to go back and refind it and, and uh, resend it back out. <laughs> so didn't you put it? Didn't you put it on Facebook one year? No, I've never put anything on Facebook. Oh, <laughs> uh, somebody else may have put it on Facebook. I am going to have a website, though, believe it or not, um, to uh, promote some of the books that I've written since so, so I have moved up here and. And in fact, I met with a website design lady yesterday, and uh, hopefully, we'll have a website by the fifteenth of December. It'll be emeryjones It should be easy to remember. Awesome. That's that's cool. Tell tell us tell us a little bit
0: about your books because I know they become very popular in that North Georgia area and among people who lived in that area. Uh, what was the basis for for some of that?
4: Well, uh, when we first moved back up here, I lived in this area it's called White County, and uh, White County had a historian. Uh, Shirley McDonald and Shirley and I became good friends, and um, she was always writing these calls about White County. So anyway, we put our heads together, and I wrote this little book called White County 101, 101 Things to Do, Know, and Love About White County. It was just a little book. It took about a weekend to write it, and um, it just took off like you wouldn't believe I mean, overnight, and so like 2,500 of those little books. So I thought, well, heck, you know, I'd, I'd like to try my hand at a real book. So there's an Indian man up here. It's called Nacoochee Valley Indian Man. And uh, it's got a little red gazebo on the top. And it's said to be, I don't know how they determine these things, <clears throat> but it's said to be the second most recognized icon in Georgia, next to Stone Mountain. And I know the people over at St. Simons have a lighthouse that they argue it's the second most, but we're either second or third, anyway, it's well known. It's right outside You of to the town of Helen. And nobody, the, the people would come by our store that we had up here, my wife ran, and they would ask questions about the Indian now, and they would say things that were just ridiculous. Um, there's cows all around it in a pasture, and somebody stopped one time and asked if it was some kind of a cow church <laughs> so so I had this idea that I would go set my camera up on a fence post and take a picture every day of the Indian man for three hundred and sixty five days and just make a coffee table book because you know the the light changes all the time, it looks different every time you drive past it and so I told my wife about that, and Judy said, Emory, that may be the dumbest idea you've ever had. Uh write a book about it. Write a book about it. So I did. I, I just got sort of interviewing people and, and researching it and, and talking to some uh, <clears throat> some of the university people that studied it in the University of Georgia at Denver's Piedmont College and really got into it. So I wound up writing a book, and, and every time you go past it, there are people there taking pictures of it or writing a poem about it or painting it. So I decided I'd interview some of those people, too, some of the artists and the poets and the photographers. And I wove their story into it, as well as the story of the farm there. And um, it just became a very popular book. So from that, I decided to write a a book. A friend friend of mine was Ludlow Porch. He was a radio and TV guy in Atlanta. He wrote about 18 humorous books. And so I I got with Ludlow. And we wrote a book called Zipping Through Georgia on a goat Powered Time Machine with Ludlow Fortune and a parrot named Pete. <laughs> and we uh, made up this time machine and we would travel through Georgia and we were trying to get to the coast of Georgia in 1733 to see Oglethorpe land and found the state. <clears throat> but we kept landing in these other places, like on the top of Stone Mountain in 1920. And we saw Jefferson Davis get captured down in Irwinville and we saw the goat man that used to travel around the south with the goats and different places. And so that that got me in the mood to write a real novel. And so I wrote a, a novel called uh, The Valley Where They Dance. It's set around that Indian man, but um, it just really took off and became very popular. And then I wrote um, a book about Helen, Georgia, the little town up there. And I wrote a book about my great-uncle uh, called Memories, in Pottery. That's how he pronounced Pottery. He was Potter, like my, my granddaddy was. And I wrote that book, and uh, those two books, The Valley and The pottery book, uh, I turned into plays, and both those plays have been put on two or three different times at different places in North Georgia. One of them, Nevada, was put on at Piedmont College, and it's the first um, the first play they've ever put on that sold out before it ever opened, and um, I, I was really proud of that, but I think they had nine performances, and of um, course, one thing I had, the, the very popular woman up here, the governor at that time, uh, his daughter, Katie Beale, and she was one of the stars of the play, so she brought a, a large, large crowd to it too. I can't take all the credit, for that. but uh, but anyway, it, that and the Cheever play has been put on. They were both they were they actually going to have four plays put on this this year, but COVID got every one of them postponed, so they're all supposedly going to be on next year. And I've also written a play about the Time Machine book called uh, It's About Time, and it's a comedy. And I think it's gonna be very funny. It's written and ready to go. It was gonna be put on last November, just, well, a year ago, and uh, we just didn't have it ready. And then we're gonna put it on about six months ago, and of course, COVID hit, and now it's rescheduled for the summer this coming year twenty twenty one. So it should be cheaper and it's about time at the Valley Play again. Um, they're having a they're gonna open up a, a build a uh Fine Arts Center here in the county, which will be uh, in about two years, and they want to have the play, the valley play, to uh, be the opening act for, for, for that. When it opens up, that'll be the first thing they do, and that'll be exciting. It's supposed to seat about 900 people, and <clears throat> that'll be fun. But uh, And I've got another play that's it's the Hardman Farm there by the Indian Man. Um, it's called Valley Voices, and it's an outdoor drama. It's ready to go. It's scheduled right now for May. It may or may not happen. I don't know. If it doesn't happen in May, it'll probably happen in the fall. But um, that'll, that'll be fun. So I've really gotten into the glaze, really enjoyed those. And, and uh, then I just finished a book. It'll be out December 15th. Um, it's called Cunningham and Other Pigs I Had Known. <laughs> and uh, I started, it's, it's a long story, but I started writing a column. Uh, there was a little item in the blotter in the newspaper that said someone over on Town Creek had found a dead pig in their driveway and had asked the police to come and help them remove it. So I came up and immediately wrote a column and claimed that it it's my pig and uh, made up this whole yarn about how it came to be and everything. The newspaper editor called me next week and he said, uh, You got to write another column about that pig. I said, I can't. He's dead. He said, Why did I have that such a reaction to a column before? He said, People love that. So write it write it, bring him back to life. Write another one. <clears throat> so about two weeks passed, and I wrote another column and said, Well, it turns out it wasn't my pig after all. So he came home and and uh, he lost a couple hundred pounds, but he's still in good shape, you know. <laughs> and anyway, and I named him Cunningham. And uh so now about every month or so I write a column and it, it appears in uh two magazines and several newspapers, and there are even Cunningham bumper stickers up here now. I love Cunningham. And um, <clears throat> so I wrote a, a, a took my columns and, and wrote a book and uh, uh, expanded it beyond Cunningham. Uh, in fact, you know the story, Frank about when I was up in North Dakota interviewing a, a farmer one time. Um, looked down in the den, and there was a big old hog laying on the couch with a blanket over it. And I'm like, You know, there's a hog on your couch. (laughs) And he said, yeah, that's Frank. He said, Frank is uh, uh, supposed to be a um, Vietnamese pot-bellied pig, and he didn't have the gene to stay small. And by the time they figured that out, the kids were already attached to him. And so uh, he was already housebroken, so they just kept him as a pet. And he was clean and didn't smell or anything. And um, he said, let me show you how smart he is. And he sent him out to the mailbox to fetch a newspaper. and Pig came back in the house of the newspaper. He'd hide behind the couch, run down the hall, keeping it away from the farmer. They just had this big game they played. And then, years later, well, a couple of years later, uh, one Sunday morning, we were <clears throat> listening to the Charles Corral on television I heard him say, uh, Stay tuned that Charles Corral interviews Frank, Frank uh, North Dakota's only piano playing pig. And they had that pig on there, and he was playing the piano <laughs> for Charles Garralton. Girl.
1: <laughs> so that was one of my
4: stories I led let, let the book off with. And I talked about being in the FFA and showing pigs, and our pigs got sunburned. And there's a lot of pig stories, but it's it'll be out December 15th, hopefully. And I don't think we'll make a play out of it, though.
0: <laughs> now, that'd be a little difficult. That'd be
1: a little tough.
4: You never know, though. You never know. In fact, um, I bet I've had 10 people ask me if I was going to make a play out of that pig book. And I said, I'm just not
0: smart enough to do that. <laughs> it's hard to find a director that's willing to work that's, with the pig. That's true. That's true. But I, I, my, my question to you is going back to uh, you know, to, to the Valley where they dance, which I thought was just a, a wonderful book. It's, it's a great story. And, and let, me, let me tell our listeners, if anybody's looking for a Christmas present for, you know, you like to read or know someone who likes to read, that would be a great, uh, it's a great subject to a uh, great book to look for. Any since you you turned it into a play, anybody sniffing around to uh, to turn it into a screenplay or or bring it to uh, bring it to Hallmark at this point?
4: Yeah, I um, actually I rode around with a, a movie producer uh, from Savannah. Well, uh, been about a year now, and we went around and looked at all the, the the beauty of that book. It's set right after World War One, and everything is still here. The Toledo Gorge is in it; it's still is still here. Indian Mound still here. The camp, camp meeting that took place is still here, and he was very impressed with it, and then COVID hit, and um, then I had a filmmaker from at, Atlanta come up, and he he went to the play. He stayed after the play, and he said, I'd like to see this turned into a, a movie script, and I said, I would too. So I've got a script actually about two-thirds of the way written. Movie producers, I found, are not interested in the book. If you tell me you've written a book, they, they could care less. They want to see the, uh, the script. So I'm working on that. But, I, you know, it's a possibility. We got a big setback with this COVID when everybody stopped making movies. The um, Ag Commissioner here in Georgia, Gary Black, is an old FFA buddy of mine. And uh, he's been up a couple of times. And he's, he's said several times, we're going to get this made into a movie. Because the Hardman Farm is now, where well, the Indian Mountain is now a state historic site. And um, the last two governors have really had a soft spot in their heart for the whole whole project there. And it would be good good, you know, for we filmed a lot of it there in that old house, um, which which where the book happens, a lot of it. And that would be good for the state, good for Georgia. So it's a possibility. Um I may not live to see it, but um I sure hope I sure hope it happens. I don't want a starting role, though.
0: I, I would I would also okay. expect you if, if it does happen, when it does happen, that you have a you know, a a prominent cameo role in it somewhere. At least a cameo.
1: A cameo a, for sure.
0: You've got to be in there somewhere.
1: I can play the role of the mule, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, good deal. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up here, Emery. It's been a great, fun conversation, and we appreciate you joining the Cotton Companion today. Uh, I guess before we, we uh, say goodbye, tell us, uh, you say you've got a website coming if people are interested in Purchasing some of these items that you've described, where where should they go? Uh, Right now, the best place
4: to get them is on Amazon. Amazon books. uh, It's also uh, the Indian Mound, Cheever, uh, Zipping Through Georgia, and The the Battle of the Dance are all Kindle too. Um, But but I would say Amazon right now. They're in a lot of local stores uh, around here in this area. I I I just haven't done a good job of marketing these books like I should have, but people seem to find them so but i would say amazon is uh, is the best way right
1: good deal and then your website you said was uh, scheduled to be up
4: uh, december december 15th december 15th is uh, is the gold date we met with the lady yesterday and she says it'll it'll finally be up there that'll just be e m o r y emory jones.com <clears throat> com
1: yeah, well, we'll be on the lookout for that. And again, we really appreciate you joining us. Well, thanks for having me,
4: on. I, re- I really appreciate you guys. Enjoyed talking to you, and uh, uh, like I say, I appreciate the opportunity to, to uh, talk to some cotton growers again. Well, good deal.
0: Well, Emery, we'll uh, we'll definitely keep you in mind, and, and do this again sometime, uh, sometime soon. Uh, it's this has been a great uh, diversion from the. From the the topics we usually talk about, and and I think um, you know it's it's probably a good time of year to uh, to sit back and, and have a little fun and reminisce and and think about some of the things that we're all but kind of thankful for at this point.
4: That's right. That's right. I, I've started a blog, by the way. Uh, it's going to be on the website, and um, I'm gonna uh, the first well one of the first blogs I've written already to go on it was things you're thankful for, but I but I'm, I'm trying to make it funny, humorous, you know it'll be, uh, but that, but this is the time of right. year when you think about all the things you think before. Definitely. And one of the, I ended the blog, I said, one of Will Rogers' quotes was never miss a good opportunity to shut up. So I'll do that now.
0: <laughs> right on cue, man. Right. right on cue.
4: Right on cue.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Amory. Emory. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. buddy. Once again, that wraps up this episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast. Thanks again to Emory Jones for joining us in the virtual studio today. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us. If you like what you hear on the Cotton Companion, please be sure to spread the word and tell your farmer friends about this podcast. Here's how you do it.
3: You can find the Cotton Companion in three easy ways. First, go to cottongrower.com forward companion or simply click the podcast tab at the top of the homepage. Second, subscribe to our channel on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts these days. And three, sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, the Cotton Grower e-news, that's delivered to your email inbox every Tuesday morning. You can do that by going to cottongrower.com forward slash subscribe. Also, be sure to follow Cotton Grower on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you'll find us by searching for Cotton Grower
0: Magazine. The November issue of Cotton Growers should be in your mailboxes and you can start watching soon for our December issue. This podcast is produced by Tyler Hatch and Kim Henderson, our talented colleagues back at World Headquarters for Meister Media Worldwide in lovely Willoughby, Ohio. My name's Jim Stedman. His name's Frank Giles. And we'll be back with you in a few weeks for the next episode of the Cotton Companion. Until then, we wish you all the best for a great and thankful holiday and stay safe.
1: Phytogen thanks you for listening to this edition of the Cotton Companion. To learn how you can thrive with Phytogen, go to phytogen.com.